Well, it's great to be here tonight and uh, appreciate so much uh, you having me, having the patience to have me. You know, I, uh, I really had this idea uh, several weeks ago when I came to you and we talked about, you know, the future and how that was kind of going to go for the college ministry and looking for someone to fill that staff position. And I thought, you know, I'd like to go there for a few weeks and preach and speak just to get to know the college students. You know, you see me up on stage, but it's a big crowd, and uh, just give me the opportunity to come and speak. But if I, I've done that for one week at a time, and, you know, really it's fine, but I really don't get a chance to really meet you and get to know you. And so hopefully over a three-week period, uh, that'll be possible. Now, as I was doing that and praying about that, whether I should do that, um, I was hoping to do it last March back when, uh, uh, you know, we first started um, with uh, Daryl uh, coming to preach, give him a little time off because he does have a couple other sermons he has to preach during the week. And I wanted to do that, but, uh, you know, I, with the surgery and everything, I was not able to. And so I'm coming tonight, and I begin to pray about it. God, what do you want me to really do and share? I just don't want to go just to say, hey, I want to get to know you. I really want something to share. And a few weeks ago, I got a, a message on, on um, social media of how, how uh, we needed to address the whole idea of deconstruction of the faith. And so certainly that is a popular uh, thing going on today, and people like uh, some serious deconstruction, like the, the young man from former DC Talk singer uh, and uh, band member, just denied the faith. And then one person, Derek, Webbs, who, Derek Webb, who wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, very popular book 15, 20 years ago, pastoring a church just walked away from the faith altogether. And it seems to be a popular thing to sort of question your faith and then to walk away from it. Now, let me just say this before we get started in the series, and that is this, uh, God really doesn't mind you questioning your faith. Uh, he really doesn't. I don't think he ever uh, publicized or wants us to have a mindless, mindless Christianity. Now, the problem is, is why we are doing it. Why are we questioning everything that we've brought, been brought up to believe? And one of the reasons may be that a person never really has uh, received Christ into their life. It's their parents. It's your parents' religion. And you think, well, you know, I believe what I believe because I've been taught all my life. And so you really search, begin to search through all the things that really make up the Bible, make up Christianity. Another reason may be that you've gone through some real suffering in your life, or you're like me sometimes. You just look at suffering in this life, and for example, I can remember uh, sharing Christ uh, a good while back with a young man in the hospital, 10 years old, who had leukemia, and his, his entire body was burning. And you wonder to yourself, God, why would you allow that kind of suffering in the world? And many other instances as being a pastor, being around that type of suffering, it's easy to begin to question that. Or maybe you've had an answer to prayer, or rather you've asked something. You say, God, if there's one thing, just one thing, God, you can give me in this life, this is what I want, and God didn't answer that prayer. And so you become, you, you come to a crisis point in your life, and you begin to question things, and very honestly, sometimes with complaining, but most of the time, very honestly. But also... And I think this is probably the wrong reason to question your faith, is the cultural differences that we're facing today. It used to be popular to be a Christian. I remember uh, growing up in the, in the uh, Jesus movement. That's where I really dedicated my life to the Lord. And it was very popular uh, around our campus 
to uh, be involved in Christian ministry, really going out, sharing your testimony. I was involved in a lot of uh, crusade type of things, man. It was just really a lot of people on fire for the Lord. Now, not so much culturally popular to be a believer. In fact, if you are an evangelical, for example, people would think, well, you automatically have this position on abortion and this position on this and that and the other, and therefore we're against you. And you think, wow, how can I be uh, so ostracized from my group? You know, I'm ostracized from the group, and if they find out I belong to that church and believe that stuff, then I'm not going to be accepted. You sort of feel like you're in the fiery furnace with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, you know, and you're, you're in the fire, and you're wondering where to turn. Or you're like Daniel in Daniel chapter 6. You're, you're in the lion's den, and you're wondering how are you going to navigate all that without just simply walking away and being cool about the whole thing. And so there are many different reasons, and Really, it comes down to, if you're a believer, really about this whole idea of your faith and your experience are not matching. You know, you see what the Bible says, and sometimes you think, man, that really came true. That was really a great thing. I really believe. Then other times you think, I thought the Bible said this. And so as we look at this for the next few weeks, I want to address next week the silence of God. What happens to your faith, and how, do, how are you challenged with that when you pray about something and it doesn't come true? And then the next week, uh, when God seems absent, the suffering that you're going through, suffering in the world, why would God even allow anything like that? And the reason I share those subjects with you is because that's where I have been challenged personally. I think a lot of people in the Bible, Bible characters, were, were challenged as well. And so this morning, or this evening, I want to look... And look at three basic things. And I want to turn to Romans chapter 8. You have your Bibles or your uh, iPad, whatever you had, your phone. Just go ahead and turn with me there. Just want to look at a few verses there. Now, I know I'm going through Romans 6, 7, and 8. And it's really a pep talk to the church, how we can overcome sin in our life, how we can be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. The first five chapters of Romans talk about our salvation, our great salvation. And then 6, 7, and 8 is a victory over our uh, sanctification in life. So, but I just want to touch, I'm going to, in a few weeks, I'll finish up that series in June, um, and we'll go into this passage in a lot of detail. I just want to touch, basically, on the passage and a couple of verses here tonight. And I want to, first of all, a, a, approach the difficulty that we have with our disillusionment with God, and then our disappointment, secondly, with the church. Two big reasons why people began to deconstruct their faith. And then we're going to look at a third thing that is going to be reviewed for some of you because I have to do that in order to have this series as we look at how to begin to reconstruct that faith in the Lord. First of all, there's a disillusionment with God. Look in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 28, some, a verse that many of you know already. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Well, we read that and we think, my goodness, you know, there's a contract here with God. And secretly, I think that's part of what we go through. We make a contract, we feel like, with God. And God makes that contract with us. And the contract goes something like this. Look, God, I will go to church. I will honor my father and my mother. I'll, I'll do some praying. I'll try to do some good. I'll try to do some service. But in return for that, you've got to take care of me. You've got to show up for me. You've got to answer my prayer. And so when we look and say, well, look, this is the way things, I think things ought to go. I envision in my mind, this is how, what would be good for my life, and it doesn't show up that way. 
And so we ask ourselves a question in this, even in this verse, what does it mean to work together? Well, obviously that means that everything's not good, but everything works together for the good. Like the old illustration about the cake mix, you know, if you've ever tried to eat flour by itself, it's not very good, is it? Or ever, ever tried to, I mean, maybe you weren't foolish enough to do this, but I've always heard when I was a kid, vanilla extract. I know you, you're, you never bake cakes because you go to Publix, right, and buy the cakes. But back in the day, my mom made cakes, and there's the vanilla. I thought, that's the flavor. That's where it is. So I took a swig of it. It's awful, awful by itself. You know, cocoa is great with sugar, but not without the sugar. And so it's like a cake mix. It all comes together and works together for something that's good, but good for who? You think, well, God, maybe this is good for you, but it's, it's not necessarily good for me. And it all makes a difference what we've been talking about on Sunday morning a lot, and that is what or who is on the throne of your life. You know, you say, well, it's not good it's because it's just not what I really envision should have happened in my life. And I look at this, and I look at the truth, God. I look at the truth, and the truth doesn't look good. And what you're looking at is probably the truth. may not be, but it probably is. It's just not the whole truth. Only God knows the whole truth. And so we stop short and we get impatient. Sometimes our problem is not a lack of faith in God. It's a lack of patience with God. God is just right there and he wants us to have the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kind of self-control. He wants us to have those things in our life. And that is his purpose in our life. That we would accomplish the purpose of growing with him and becoming all that he wants us to be in Christ. For that to happen, there, there has to be some adversity in life. There has to be some trials in life. I, you know, when I'm talking about raising children and things like that, I, I see one of the greatest mistakes parents make is they open up the cocoon for their kids. You know what I'm talking about, right? If you've ever done that, you've been so cruel to do that to a butter, you know, uh, to a, a caterpillar that's about ready to become a butterfly. You think, wow, let me, you know, it's just struggling. This poor little creature is just struggling so much let me help so you open it up the butterfly gets out but the butterfly can't fly because it's the it's the power it's the it's the adversity it's the trial of going through of getting out of that cocoon that gives strength to its wings you say well it'll get better later it'll never fly it'll never fly so God is not trying to open up the cocoon he's trying to let it come out let you come out naturally so you will be a strong uh, Christian in Jesus Christ. And so let me, let me just give you an example of this. You know, things not always good, but they work out for the good. You, you just never know what God's doing. I remember, and if you've uh, been here long enough, you, you know this story. You know a lot, most of my stories. I mean, I've been here forever. You know, you, you've got to know most of my stories. So, um, but when I came here, um, you know, I was getting kind of antsy for the first time in my life. We'd started a church in Atlanta. I'm thinking, you know, God, you want us to relocate? Boy, that's a long, long time uh, commitment. Do I really want to make that? All of a sudden, I, you know, here was a place I was going to stay the rest of my life, and I was being faced now with a situation of uh, maybe moving 10 miles down the road, probably starting something else there, but really moving my, my preaching ministry, at least pulpit ministry, down the road. And uh, it's going to take another seven years. So I'm wrestling with this, but pretty soon... I quit wrestling. I was feeling better, feeling encouraged. 
we were going to have a friend day. Now, back when we were doing this in Atlanta, it was a huge thing. We did it twice. The first time, we doubled our crowd. Everybody was inviting their friends. We had people, so we had a special football player, special guest, football, a retired football player. He preached a little bit, and then I preached, gave an invitation, and we had a bunch of people saved. What an encouragement. Well, we're doing that the next year, and we had another former football player to come. He's now was a coach, and he was going to come. We had it really built up, and boy, we just, we just going to pack the place out, and it was going to be extremely encouraging. And I thought to myself, well, once I go through this again, I'm going to be, I'm just going to be in. I got to be in because all those people getting saved, I just can't, I can't leave them or anything like that. Well, the day before, they predicted snow on that Sunday. Now, I, live in, I lived in Georgia. They predicted snow all the time. I remember going through the grocery store counter there at the local grocery store. They didn't have Publix there, but local grocery store. And all I had was a loaf of bread and some peanut butter or something. And all these people were buying out the store. I couldn't even get through the 10 line item. And this, uh, the clerk looked at me and she said, is that all you're going to buy? You know, it's going to snow. I said, it's not going to snow. I'm not worried about it. Everybody's looking at me. And I'm, I'm the smart aleck. You know, I think I'm the smartest guy. I'm not going to just buy all these groceries for nothing. Uh, the next day, it had the, we had the biggest snow ever in the history of Georgia. We had eight inches of snow. I, I don't know if we've broken that record yet. But we had eight inches of snow and nothing to eat in the house but bread and peanut butter. And I had three kids. And so I, I told Pam, I said, I'm going to get in the car and, uh, you know, the Kmart's just up the road. They've got something in there. And there's a grocery store over there, too. I'll just drive over there. We're only a mile away. I couldn't get the car out of the driveway with all that snow and ice. Couldn't even move it. So I began to walk. And all the time I'm walking, I, I'm thinking, all the way up there, I'm thinking to myself, God, why did you do this? I mean, why did you? I, I don't understand. We have this great friend day coming up. We're going to pack it out. We can put it off a week. Maybe the guy can come next week. Maybe he can. But you know it's not going to be the same. It's not even close to the same. And I, I was discouraged the whole time I was walking. Well, once I got there, I found out every store was closed. And so I'd walked about a mile in the snow, you know, uphill both ways. I, I walked, as, you know, the story gets better the more years go by. And, um, and so I was going up, and I, I said, well, I got to, I'll just go home, you know. And so on the way home, I'm thinking to myself, you know, God, you've got something here. You know, I just, I just feel like you've got something and I'll just hold out for it. Maybe I would have been too encouraged after today. And maybe you do want me to go somewhere else. Maybe, maybe you do have a change for us coming up. I walk in the door. My feet are frozen. I can barely walk up the stairs. And my wife, Pam, is talking to someone over the phone. And she handed the phone to me. And she said, it's um, a guy, he says, from a, a search committee, pastor search committee down in Florida. So I picked up the phone and began talk, talking to him. We hit it off right away. Next thing I know, I'm here. Okay? So you never know what's going to happen. See, I'm here. The reason I'm here is because we had the worst snowstorm ever in the state of Georgia. Well, you just never know what's going to happen. You don't know what God's going to do. But there's, there's something else that, that causes us pause in questioning the Lord. And that is a disillusionment of the church. A disappointment. A disappoint. We also have a contract with the church. We say, okay, God, I'm coming. I will attend and uh, maybe raise my kids in the church, but that church needs to take care of me. That church needs to love me. That, that church needs to be there when I really need them. 
Then you hear stories like this. Well, the reason we didn't come back to church is because some, some of the high schoolers, not this church necessarily, just, but this is a true story that's been told by a pastor friend of mine. He said they, they visited us on Sunday afternoon, and they visited the kids of the church, visited my kids, and then on Monday they wouldn't even speak to them. They told them all about Jesus on Sunday, but wouldn't speak to them on Monday because they weren't part of the popular crowd. See, things like that, stories like that, you begin to have a, a disillusionment there because you think to yourself, well, you know, it, it's, I don't see, I don't see the great life change that's going on in people's lives. One of the things I've noticed, and I could be wrong about this, but one of the things I perceive is that back when I was um, younger, we had all kinds of testimonies. I remember going to a place called College Life, which is a um, a ministry of Campus Crusade back in the day, and every Sunday night they'd have a testimony. Every Sunday night, somebody else, another student, another teacher, another, not a teacher, but a, somebody that worked for Crusade would be getting up, and I'm thinking, wow, these are just great stories. We saw lives changing all the time. Do you see lives changing? Do you come to church and see lives changing? And I know we can be extra critical of the church, but let me just say that the first entity that was in America that opposed slavery was the church. Most hospitals and universities here in America were started by the church. Even the story of our children's building here, just we have a heritage of faith. People, and that children, you know, the ones with the big brick where we have the children's church, um, they, were going, they, they were meeting and, uh, in that church or in the, in the, in the children's building uh, for worship. And the children's area was that basement, damp basement. There was mold down there at the time. And the, uh, one of the, the men from the uh, convention came in and said, you know, the University of Central Florida, and I called that then, was going to be moving in. You've got to have a college moving in. And those young families are not going to take their kids and little babies and put in that damp basement. You, you've got to build a new building. They went down to the bank, tried to get a loan. They couldn't get a loan. And they said, we don't have enough collateral. So 13 men in this church signed an agreement. They, they signed over their homes as collateral to build that big brick building. And one of the men, Bob Ward, came home and told his wife. He said, those, we may not have a house to live in here in a few years, but those little children are going to have a place to learn about Jesus. See, there, there's a heritage. There's a heritage in the church that does reach out. The whole Roman Empire was turned upside down, not because of good preaching, not because of great music. It was turned upside down because of the ministry and the sacrifice that Christians were willing to make. But we've got a couple of problems. We've got a problem of, of character. You hear, you hear about Hillsong and everything that's happened to that church and just falling apart and the, the pastor's are caught in all kinds of sin. We have someone up here in, in Jacksonville, one of the biggest churches in Jacksonville, had to resign recently. We've got all these kind of things going on. In fact, George Barna, who surveys the church uh, all the time, he surveys, in fact, you want to read something depressing, read his books, but uh, you know, he, he surveys the church. He says there's really no real difference between the way a church member act, is acting and the way a non-church member acts or lives. There's really no difference. So there's a character issue. There's a think, thinking to ourselves, look, if Jesus Christ 
really makes the difference, then why is he not making a difference? What I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what I experience in the lives as I look at other people just doesn't match the Bible. But you and I both know that it really does. It just doesn't do it in everybody's life. You, have, you should, and if you don't, you're hanging around the wrong, you know, you, you, need to, you need to get more involved in this group, more involved in the church. There are people in this church, for example, that I know personally that have a dynamic walk with God. So it is happening, but yet sometimes the immature or even the lost speak louder sometimes in churches than other people do. And so there's another thing, is that, that is not only the character of people, but also the judgmental, um, the way things come across so judgmentally. And I would, I would say even more than abortion and the gay issue, from a long time back, it's just this one verse in the Bible, among many verses like it, that says this. Jesus said, right after he said, I go and prepare a place for you in heaven, he said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, do you know what that verse means? That means Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12, than the name of Jesus. And you think about it. Why would God send his only son to die on the cross for us if there had been another way to heaven? You see, the problem is in our society, they think, well, that's judgmental. That's judgmental, and I want to stay away from that judgmental stuff because if I'm judgmental, then I'm not thinking about the good life the rest of these people are living. In fact, some of, those, some of the people outside the church live better, more moral lives. They're nicer. Maybe not more moral, but they're nicer sometimes than the people inside the church. And so it's, it's hard to put, pull all that together. But we think to ourselves, well, I, I can't do that. I, I, can't, I don't want to go there because I, I just don't want to be that judgmental. But folks, you know, we have to be, if we're not right about something, if we, if we go by something that's false in our life, we live at a great disadvantage of life. And it's, I feel like, under the conviction that I have, of course, is, is to get the word out because if people are lost without Jesus Christ, I need to be telling the story and not saying, well, you're all right, and you're all right, and you're all right, and giving them some kind of false hope. So why Christianity? Why is it that we say Christianity is the right one? I think that's a great question. It says, again in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. And that is a, a stumbling block to so many people. When I was um, more, in, had reason to be interviewed uh, when I was younger, the, the newspapers would always ask the same question. The interviewees would ask the same question. Is Jesus Christ the only way to heaven? They would entrap you with that because once they got you to say that, and yes, he is, and that's the, you know, I believe that to be the truth, then they felt like they had you as you know, a judgmental buffoon of some type. So, what about Christianity? Well, let's look 
at the rest of this passage a little bit. It says, For those who are called to according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his Son. Talk about that a little bit more later, but that's God's purpose for our life, that we become more like him. Skip down to verse 31. And when they, what shall, shall they say the, to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also with him graciously give us all things? And he says, look, faith stands at intention between the past and the future. And Paul is saying this, look, look what God has done for you in the past. If he would send his only son to die for you on the cross, don't you think you can trust him in the trials and the suffering and the, and the prayers that seem to go unanswered? Can't you trust him over here when he's done all this for you in the past? But the question is, has he done that? Look in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is he who justifies or puts people saved. Who is he condemned? Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised who at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Dawson McAllister, who was a former guy who used to teach youth all the time, he was one of the great youth speakers back uh, several years ago, said this, it's popular to seek for truth, but once you find it, you're a bigot. Now think about that. Oh, I'm seeking the truth, I'm seeking the truth, I'm seeking. But once you find it, when you say, oh, I found the truth, well, then you're narrow-minded in some way. But what about this? Well, Christianity is I can just review this just a moment, is um, based on three things, a book, the Bible, a person, Jesus Christ, and an event, the resurrection. I remember watching a movie called A Case for Faith, I think it was called, a story of Lee um, Strobel, um, who was a lawyer and then um, later changed to a newspaper reporter. And he was working for a newspaper, and he was an atheist, and his, his wife was also an atheist, and they were pretty happy being atheists, it seemed like. And his wife, uh, unbeknownst to him, was not really satisfied with life. Something was missing from her life. A friend of hers invited her to a Bible study and then later invited her to a church uh, out in California, or up in Chicago, excuse me, um, Willow Creek. And she began to go to that, and he began to worry about her. And finally she got saved, and he was just really upset about it. And he says, I've got to save my wife. I've got to help my wife get out of this cult. And so he began to look at Christianity. And he asked a friend of his who was a Christian, he says, now you're a Christian, uh, you go to church. If I wanted to disprove Christianity, where would I start? And he said, well, you start at the resurrection. It's like, a, it's like dominoes. If you can disprove the resurrection, all of it just falls. It's like a house of cards. And so he went about, he says, I want to do this story. I want to go all over the country and interview the, the best scholars on both sides of the issues issue, and he, he went and researched all that, and it came out that he received Christ himself, because he could not not only disprove the resurrection, but he would even say, in all, if you put all the evidence before a court, you would have to come out and say, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. Why would he say that? What I just said back in, in uh, our uh, Easter services. And that is, is that there's a couple of things, only the grave was, in fact, let me share with you real quickly 10 things that we know about Jesus Christ. Now, this is not biblically based. This is just historically based. This is what we know about Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth died by means of crucifixion. Number two, Jesus' body was placed in a guarded tomb. Number three, the disciples were shattered that their Messiah had died. They lost all hope. 
They did not expect a resurrection. Now, you can argue about all hope, but they lost hope. The tomb was empty, was found, was found empty on the third day. That's, that's a fact. Eyewitnesses reported the bodily, bodily appearance of Jesus on several occasions, over 500 at one time. That's in the books, history books. The shattered faith of the disciples was radically transformed into bold belief in the resurrection. The disciples from that point willingly sacrificed their lives for the cause of Christianity. Then, next, the proclamation of the early church was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then, the Christian church sprang from news of the resurrection, and Sunday became the featured day of worship, and that's how it got changed from Sunday or Saturday to Sunday. Jesus appeared to James, Paul, and both of them experienced conversion as a result of their encounters with Jesus Christ. I mean, how hard would that be? James, that's the brother of Jesus. You think James grew up thinking, oh, my brother's the son of God. Would you ever, if your brother claimed to you that he was the son of God, would you believe that? I think it would take a lot of proof. And then Jesus' body, lastly, was never found. Now, whatever you believe about the resurrection, what everybody believes about the resurrection and what happened to the body, the, bo- the tomb was empty and it caused a lot of havoc on that third day. And so, as in the case for faith, as in Josh McDowell's books and other things, really there are only a couple of possibilities. You know, the, the whole theories that come along, hallucination theory uh, and all that, he didn't die theory, is just is so unbelievable that no one believes that. that. Books were written about it. People considered it and brushed it off. Basically, the tomb was empty. It was stolen or he rose from the dead. One of the two. You know, if, if the body was stolen, it was stolen by the disciples, then why in the world would they do it? They didn't believe Jesus was going to rise from the dead in the first place. In fact, they didn't get it. And then to top it all off, what were they going to do? Steal the body, burn the, first of all, overpower the guards, steal the body, burn the body, and then go out, preach the gospel as if it really happened, and die for their faith. And you say, a lot of people have died for their faith. Yeah, but it would have been the only time in history where we had a group of people to die for something they knew was false. So, it could have been the uh, Jewish leaders. Then why didn't they just produce the body and ruin Christianity right off the bat? You see, the other thing, let me just, i got to finish up here. The other thing was just the eyewitness accounts. Now, we have some redoing of history today. I think one of the things that happened to our schools maybe in the past 20, 30 years we just quit teaching history. I, I think my kids came up through school without l- learning U.S. history. I don't know if you had it or not, if they replaced it. I think they learned Florida history. And, uh, man, you know, I could almost, you know, do without learning Florida history. But, you know, it's a good thing, too, I'm sure. But they didn't learn all this, and so they're kind of replacing it. But they're going back 200. Well, this really happened 200 years ago. This happened 300 years ago. Well, it's plausible to do that and get some people to believe it. And some people, and as I said at Easter... What people's narrative is and what their belief is is that this book, all these accounts of the resurrection, are are fabricated. What happened was Jesus died and then something happened. and We don't know what happened, but hundreds of years passed on. And then suddenly somebody wrote down a fabricated story that changed after about two or three hundred years. The problem is, again, that, that just never happened. The book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians that talks about the resurrection in chapter 15 was written 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are, are pretty young, 
I think. Most of you probably around 20 years old. And so it's like you going back to five years old is kind of harder to remember. But there's people here that, uh, you know, if I, if I said, you know, for example, 20 years ago, the towers that fell in New York never happened, just never happened. They would say, I beg your pardon. I know people that were there. I, I've talked to people personally that were there, and they saw the towers fall. Other people saw it on TV. There's no way to lie about that. The Bible says 500 witnesses were still alive at least, and he said, or rather, they, they saw the resurrected Lord, and they were still alive at that time. Still alive. And so, how in the world could the disciples go out and preach something, and the people come along and say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. We never, who, who, what's your witness? Who saw that? Well, nobody. We all saw it with the eyes of faith. Well, it's not very believable. They could not say something like that without eyewitness and eyewitness accounts that were right there before them. So what does all this mean? That means somehow, some way, folks, this has to be considered something that really could be true. And wow, what would that mean? Uh, Rollo May was in England, decided to visit a church, kind of a high church type thing, high church worship. And he was in, he was in there on Easter and decided he'd go to, he'd go to church on Easter. And uh, author and I think a psychologist. And he was sitting in there and the pastor would say, Christ is risen. And the congregation would repeat, he is risen indeed. So he got into it, back and forth, back and forth, got louder and louder. And then it dawned, he said, it dawned on me. What if he had risen? What would that mean? What would that mean to his life? And he thought to himself, if I could believe that, it would mean everything. It would be maybe worth it to be in the fiery furnace. It'd be worth it maybe to go to bat for Jesus under persecution. Maybe it'd be worth it to be ostracized from the group. He considered um, a second-rate intellectual at best. Because you believe in a miracle that took place that has evidence written all over it. I tell you, when I came to the realization that Jesus was real, I want you to know I knew none of these arguments. Because really what needs to happen is God saves you. All of these things are to get those, those things out of the way. All those doubts out of the way. But really, it's God working in your life to say, you know it's true. You just know it's true. When I came to know Christ, I suddenly woke up, not literally, but I woke up. And I think, God, I believe this. I believe this. I was, I was reconstructing constructing my faith a little bit, 19 years old, been saved for three years, hadn't seen a lot of fruit outside of my life, but also even in the church, they seemed to be good people, but nothing supernatural, but I was seeing through these testimonies at crusade, I was beginning to see Jesus Christ changing lives, and I said, God, boy, I'd like that kind of life change, I'd like that kind of conviction, I'd like to be able to have a 
a purpose in my life, living for something. I'm sitting down on the floor at Memorial Hall, <clears throat> student center back then, and I'm thinking about what was saying that, said that night, the Holy Spirit of God ministering in you and all these testimonies I'm hearing. And I said, God, that's it. That's it. I don't know all the answers, but I know you're the answer. And I gave my heart and life afresh and anew to Christ, and I said, you got it, I'm yours. And I never looked back. Why? I came to the realization Wow, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That means he died on the cross for my sins. That means he loves me. That means that he has not only a love and a grace for my life, but he wants a relationship with me. That, that means everything. So where are you tonight? Um, could it be that you're kind of deconstructing, reconstructing? Maybe this didn't apply to you tonight. Maybe it's just a little affirmation. I hope that's all it was. But you need to be able to ask, ask the questions. The questions that's on your mind, on your heart, and you need to have some answers to your life. And then God just needs to take it all, speak to you, your heart, so you can give your life afresh and anew to him if you've never done it for the first time. So let's pray together. God, <clears throat> we thank you so much for your word. I pray that it was helpful tonight. I pray it was challenging tonight. And I pray that it will be also helpful and challenging in the weeks to come. So, God, as we meet here tonight, <clears throat> I pray, first of all, for every Christian. In fact, I just want to address every believer. Would you ask God right now to speak to you through the words that you've heard? Would you ask God to affirm your faith in him? To know that he's the answer to all the questions. And then, God, I pray for those who have never received Christ into their heart. I pray before they would leave here today, tonight, they would just simply say to you, God, I trust you. I believe in you. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose again for me. And I just want to give you my life. I want my life to count for you and have that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.